All right, you're listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On this week's episode, Deputy Editor Andrew Knowlton talked to our contributing wine writer, Marissa Ross, author of our unfiltered column in Bon Appetit, the magazine, all about natural wine. What is natural wine exactly? Like compared to like, is it organic? Is it biodynamic? What all these words mean? And then after that, remember how a few weeks ago we had that mini-series of sub-podcasts called Basically, which is pegged to our new website, also called Basically, which is a sort of kind of where you go to learn to cook at eatbasically.com. We got on the phone with a bunch of listeners and solved their food problems. And this week, Carla Lolly Music, our food director, talks to Mackenzie Morgan from Augusta, Georgia. And Mackenzie was wondering, like, how to shop for and cook seafood, which can, you know, sometimes seem daunting, even though it's actually quite easy. So let's do this thing. Here is Andrew and Marissa, and then after that, Carla and Mackenzie. Marissa A. Ross, what's up? Uh, nothing much. How's it going, man? It's good. You know what? I'm I'm really proud because in my hands, I'm holding the September 2017 Best New Restaurants in America issue. How excited are Always you? Always the most exciting issue lot, of the year. It is. A lot of work goes into it. And this year, we did something kind of cool. We kind of covered all the trends and, and things out there that we saw while we dined out this year. So we didn't just focus on the restaurant. And this year we did the drink of the year. And the drink of the year, this year is not just one drink, it's many drinks. It is natural wine, something near and dear to your heart. That's correct. Yeah, you're talking about like it's the drink of the year. I'm like, it's the drink of my life. It's my it's my passion, my everything. I love it. So I get, <laughs> I get confused sometimes with when people say natural wine. And you go into a wine bar now and like, you know, you hear restaurants say oh, we're, we're really into natty, natty wines, they call them, natural <laughs> wines. Um, and it is a breath of fresh air, I think, for, for those of us who kind of grew up with those oaky Chardonnays and kind of trophy, you know, Barolos um, of the past. But for people out there who don't know, in your most eloquent Rossian way, can you tell us what exactly is natural wine? Rossian. I'm going to need to start using that when I'm feeling <laughs> like really egotistical. That, that was fun. Um, natural wine is a very, very ambiguous term. But natural wine, as I think the wine community likes to describe it and the way that I like to describe it, is wine has nothing added and nothing taken away. So it's um, there's nothing added in the vineyard, such as pesticides or besides any sort of chemicals, um, no synthetic fertilizers, and also um, they are dry farmed, which means that they rely entirely on, you know, uh, the natural weather patterns to water them. So no 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 hoses or sprinklers or anything. Nope, nothing. Hmm, um, did not know totally that. Fully reliant on nature, and then it also means that there's nothing added in the cellar. So you have no additives, uh, no chemicals, fining agents, anything like that. Which people don't really realize, but there's actually dozens of those in every single uh, commercial wine that they don't have to tell you about. Um, and I think that that's why natural wine. A big part of why natural wine is really important. So it's basically if you took a carrot seed and planted it <laughs> and then pulled it out of the ground and ate it and without doing anything to it, just letting nature take its course, that's what you're doing with this wine. Pretty much. I mean, of course, there is some human intervention because you got to 
still make the wine and and you get to choose whether you're, you know, doing oak fermentation or concrete fermentation or whatever you want to do. But yeah, it's pretty much just taking those grapes, um, fermenting them in your vessel of choice and hoping it turns out. So it's interesting. Cause sometimes cause, they don't. Yes. Cause sometimes they, they turn out, uh, to taste like, uh, I think people say grapefruit juice or, or, or spoiled yeah, apple I mean, juice. Natural wine's like any wine. You know, there's there's great bottles and then there's shit bottles. So I think what we wanted to do with this with this wine story was we just didn't want to kind of report on the bottle or what comes out of the bottle. But it seems to me that there's this whole kind of culture around natural wines. I've been, you know, I've been eating out for a little while and I've never seen, <laughs> you know, it reminds me of the cocktail renaissance of like 15 years ago where like all of a sudden everyone was doing craft cocktails and they were all using fresh juices and, you know, wearing uh, suspenders and with mustaches or tattoos. Absolutely. So what, what happened? Like, why all of a sudden is this born from the kind of slow food movement? Why did everything become so damn natural all of a sudden? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the organic produce movement or even craft beer, uh, people have just become a lot more um, interested putting in their bodies and like the ingredients and things. And I think that natural wine follows um, those consumer trends. But also I think that natural wine just kind of go better with the food trends. Like in restaurants where, you know, we're more focused on uh, fresher ingredients and and lighter food styles um, than in the past. Like, for example, when big oaky Chardonnays were huge, you know, the, the cuisine was mostly French inspired. So you needed wines that were big enough to, stand up to those richer dishes. But now our food, I, I think, is a lot lighter and fresher. And natural wines in general just go better with those flavor profiles. Yeah, they reflect those. And they're also, uh, natural wines tend to be less boozy, like a, a less alcohol by volume. Is that true? Not all natural wines are necessarily lower in alcohol because that actually has way more to do with the grapes and the vintage and the harvest and the whole year that those grapes spent growing because the warmer the the year, the the higher the alcohol content of the grapes because they create more sugar. So, like for example, you know, you can get Gamay's for, you know, 11 12% alcohol, but the Beaujolais wines that are coming in for 2015 um, have all been, you know, like 14% alcohol. I've even seen some that are 15% alcohol, which is really, really high. Um, so while you can find a lot of um, low alcohol natural wine, it isn't a total rule. And when and when they when they list the alcohol percentage on a bottle, that can be plus or minus one or two. Is that basically what it is? Yeah, I mean, there's rumors around the wine community of people taking off a couple extra, like if a Syrah is like around sixteen percent, you know, and then like taking it down to fourteen. Okay. Um, to sell it. So, you, so I mean, you kind of don't ever know, but eh, it's, as long as it's delicious and you're enjoying it, that's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what, you know, I think I was in uh, Paris a couple months ago and I went to La Bouvette, which is a great little wine bar that specializes in natural wines. And when I first kind of heard the movement happening and, and, and specifically the, the little bars opening in stores, it seemed like it was a a French kind of Paris thing. I know there's you know, probably all over the world, but, and now it's kind of started to come, especially out into California. You have Ordinaire, which is an amazing little wine bar. You have one in LA too yeah. that you love, right? 
Yeah, yeah. My uh, my local haunt is Barbandini. Spend a lot of time there. Um, it's great. But I, I, I think the cool thing is that it's getting, you know, pe- maybe it's getting younger people who would normally have, you know, gone to just a regular bar and now they're going to a wine bar. Because when I was growing up, wine bars were the worst. Like you'd get a, you know, that, that kind of slate board that would have some oh, goat God. cheese and some, you know, some dried <laughs> cherries. And then, you know, it'd be like, we've got a delightful yeah. flight of Chardonnays. And you're like, wow, wine, wine bars suck. Um, but that's changing. Totally. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, like, I, I hang out in wine bars a lot since writing about wine is my job, um, and I love them, and I think that it's really cool because these wine bars have helped create a really wonderful community um, that doesn't have to necessarily be wine professionals. I, I think that, you know, you can go to a wine bar and meet great friends and talk about wine with um, strangers or the people that work there or your friends if you invite them along with you um, and really just have like a cool conversation around wine that doesn't have to be pretentious or, you know, about anything in particular, but it just kind of brings people together over these I like to think of wine as like a shared subjective um, experience. You know, you can you could share a bottle of vodka, um, but you don't really like share a bottle of vodka. Like everyone kind of takes their vodka differently. Like, you know, I prefer mine with grapefruit and we know that Rappo loves his with soda, for example. Right. So and and I don't and I vodka. don't hang out with people and who drink vodka. I know. So you there you go. You don't hang out when we're drinking <laughs> vodka. Um, but those are two different experiences. Whereas wine, we're drinking the exact same thing and experiencing the same, the same, um, beverage, but probably very subjectively and very differently. And I think that that's such a fun thing to talk about with, uh, you know, your friends or strangers or, um, anyone in the wine bar with you, you can look over and the person next to you is drinking that same glass, uh, glass from the Loire. And, um, you can just, conversation about it and it's really fun it's a great way to learn about wine now i know you get this question a lot and and a lot of people you know trends food trends booze trends come and go it seems like this day is you know 24 hour cycle but you know and i feel this question a lot too do you think this natural wine thing is a trend or is it here to stay natural wine is not a trend while it may be more popular right now um natural wine in its current form in terms of how it's being perceived right now, you know, this has been going on for 20, 30 years. This is the ancestral way of making wine. This is how wines were originally made. And so, no, I don't personally consider it a trend. I consider it um, a very important um, part of wine. And I think it's always been here and it always will be here and whether or not it's trendy and served in all the, you know, best restaurants in the <laughs> September issue um, will be yet to be foreseen. But I consider natural wine a, a way of life. And I think that most people that enjoy it feel the same way too. That's considered an awakening that people are having. Yes. Yes. Well, people just don't realize what, you know, first of all, I think Americans have a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol just in general. You know, I, I have a I have a very healthy relationship. I beg your pardon. <laughs> well, I do too. But what I was going to say is that the you know our society you know we're we're told we can't drink and then we're let out into the wild you know at, at eighteen years old and drinking becomes a means to an end to just like get drunk and have a good time and right. you're not really thinking about what you're putting in your body and so with wine you know no one really or anything people just didn't really think about the fact that these drinks are, they're agricultural products. They're just like food. 
So it is an awakening of like, hey, like you're putting this in your body. And like for the same reason that you buy your kale at the farmer's market is the same reason you should be caring about what's in your wine. Because the same, you know, the same farming practices or, you know, whatever you're you're pissed off about in the produce aisle at your, you know, mass market um, is the same are the same practices that go into growing the grapes that are in that wine. And also there's tons of additives and crazy shit in there that you just don't know about. So I think that people are, are applying their philosophy to food and to wine now. And, and, you know, we said that there's, you know, this growing, uh, increasing awareness of natural wines. And, and it seems like there's more of it at least available, whether there's more being produced, but it's still, you know, the lion's share of the market is still the grocery store wines that are, are industrial products, correct? Absolutely. And I don't, and I don't know if that will ever change. Yeah. While I don't believe that natural wine is a trend, I always think it will be kind of a niche market. I just don't think there is enough of it. I mean, there's a lot more of it now, but even for these natural winemakers to get up to the production of, you know, a, a grocery store wine, they would have to change their entire model and probably not be natural wines anymore. Is it a general rule that natural wine producers just make less wine because of how volatile the their their product is? I think that, and I think that they're just a lot smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, I mean, while while America um, has a you know a vastly growing natural wine community here, um, the the growers like in in Europe, you know, they're not really thinking about making wine in the same way that people like in Napa, for example, you know, they're not doing it because they're looking to get a chateau off highway 29 in Napa and like be this, you know, Mittner with a fucking, excuse me, with a squeeze vest on and, you know, new hobbies like making Cabernet. You know, these are people that inherited these vineyards that, that have had this land in their family for generations and this is just a way of life to them mm-hmm. and it's not about it's not about money as much as it is mostly about their love of wine and respecting the heritage of their family and their land and mm-hmm. so it's just a, I think it's a very very different business model so you so you mentioned a few domestic producers are starting to 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 make natural wines because to me it's always seemed like it's a very european thing this kind of old world thing who are some of the people who in california or elsewhere who are kind of uh waving the natural uh wine banner uh well right now i'm really into um ruth landowski wines it's um made by evan landowski and he actually takes California grapes and he takes them to Utah and he ferments them there and he's actually planting his own vineyards in um, Utah right now. Crazy. And he's doing some really, really cool stuff. You have people like Lo-Fi who's great out of Santa Barbara and I mean there's there's tons of them. There's there's tons of them. I can't even, now I'm like I'm at a loss for like who to say because also too, sometimes like I'm sometimes they're not entirely natural though. Sometimes they're low intervention, which gets tricky. So sometimes you don't know. It's a tricky thing. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, if you're not going out to a restaurant that, you know, kind of has a specializes in natural wines or promotes itself like that. um, When you walk into like a wine store, should you just kind of blurt out, like I'm looking for a natural wine? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, yeah. I mean, I think that people are, 
have been really, really scared of wine shops because in the past they have been really intimidating and wine as a whole and as a culture has been very elitist and unwelcoming to um, anyone that isn't already a part of like their group. But things have changed so much and most wine shops are full of people that have a lot of knowledge about wine and actually genuinely want to help you and genuinely care about wine and getting you a good bottle. So I... I always am like, this is what I'm looking for. Someone point me in the right direction. So if you're looking for a natural wine, definitely say that you're looking for one and tell them what exactly you're looking for in terms of like a flavor profile, if that's something you also want to add. But yeah, just tell them what you want. Be straightforward. And sometimes and sometimes when I walk into wine stores, I, I guess this is a question more than... Well... Let me start over. When I walk into wine stores, sometimes I'm used to seeing a, a whole special section that says like natural or bi- biodynamic or organic. Like a lot of people are separating wines from, I guess, the other wines. Is that something that yeah. you think people, wine stores should do? I mean, should people be looking for, you know, like it says Italy, that you should be looking for natural wine section? I think that that could be a fine way to do it. Yeah. I, I don't... But are, are I, most I stores that, doing that? I mean, are they just throwing everything in there together? Well, I think I think it's hard for... I think I live in, you know, where I live in California, and for us here, you know, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but the wine shops that I visit mostly do not do that, but that's because most of them are focused on natural wines already. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, though, that in terms of shops that are across the country where natural wine is becoming, you know, um, is, is just being introduced. I think that that's great. I think anything to make the consumer's experience easier is always going to be good because wine is extremely confusing and, um, a very complex subject and consumers don't always, you know, it, it, it's hard. So yeah, wine shops, should, wine shops should definitely label their stuff as long as they're not doing it, you know, in like an, exploitative way, right? which, you know, I mean, like, for example, when I see some larger supermarkets that will go unnamed, so I don't have like a real problem with them, but you know, it's like, you'll see like a huge brand that's like natural wine or like organic wine. And it's, you go over there and it's, and it's wineries that are now using organic grapes just because like it's popular. It's popular. It's a, it's a marketing tool. It's a, yeah, it's 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 um, yeah, it's marketing. So I'm gonna if if companies if, are dumb. If people want to master kind of the new drinking vocabulary, and we've talked about this in other stories, but this is specifically you know how how do you become a natural wine natural? So I'm gonna give you a word, and if you can define it and and tell us kind <laughs> of this is not a quiz. I know you know these. Um, tell <laughs> us kind of what it has to do with natural wines and kind of why it matters. So first one is skin contact. So skin contact is a, uh, a term that's used primarily for white wines, um, and it refers to the fermentation process. So with red wines, um, red wines are all fermented with their skin. That's why they're red. Um, grape juice itself, if you were to press red wine grapes or white wine grapes, if you press just that juice, it's going to come out clear. So what gives wine its color is the skin. So when you talk about a skin contact wine, you're generally talking about a white wine that has been fermented for some amount of time, depending on the winemaker and what he wanted to do with it, with its skin. So it gives it a color that ranges, you know, from a more vibrant golden yellow all Mm -hmm. the way to, um, you know, dirty bong water, brown, orange. Right. (laughs) And that kind of leads us to the next word, 
is oxidation? So oxidation is kind of a twofold, um, as a lot of wine words in the natural wine world are, because oxidation classically has been a flaw. It means that a wine has been exposed to oxygen and has gone bad. But with natural wine, um, there are many winemakers that actually use oxidation on purpose in order to give wines... um, Basically, it creates like this really like nutty, bruised apple sort of uh, vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, Similar to almost like a sherry, almost right, like a sherry smell. Yeah, exactly, slightly. exactly. Yeah. And, and this isn't new. Like the Jura in France has been doing this forever. So yeah, it's it's just the uh, it's the purposeful and thoughtful, hopefully, wine being exposed to air. All right, this is my favorite wine word of the past ten years, um, and I've heard it. Two pronunciations. So if I mispronounce it the way you usually do, you know that I mispronounce everything. That's true. That's true. Uh, What about is it glue glue or glau glau? It's apparently glue glue. Glue glue. I always thought it was glau glau. No, it's glue glue because it's like glue 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 glue. What is? See, it's such a good word. I mean, so yeah, I always say like, what kind of wine would you like this evening, sir? And I'd be like, just some glue glue glue. What does it mean? So glue glue is a um, is a French uh, French slang word for a very juicy chilled red that you can just slug back, you know, at glue 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 all the way down to your gullet. It's just delicious wine that you can drink tons of. Usually, um, like I said, it's generally referring to light red wines that are low in alcohol and very juicy. So. Um, like Gamay is a very um, quintessential. I was going to bring up wine. Gamay, which is kind of your first love in the wine world, or the I one love. that you're you're currently courting. But I do think the interesting thing about Gamay is, um, you know, for it's it's something that I drink. You know, I'm probably depend on it too much, but it's just such a, a lovely default wine because yeah. it is that light bodied red that that goes with all kinds of food whether it's you know red meat or fish or i mean whatever it's just so especially when you chill it it's the best so that is gamay is like if somebody is getting into natural wine i know that sounds silly but if they don't know anything about it gamay is a good place to start right because it is gamay is a great place to start although like i was talking about vintages earlier you got to be careful because the beaujolais that are coming out right now are real they are not glue glue the They're ones that I've had, not. I mean, they 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 really vary. So um, you got to be careful. But Gamay in general, I think overall, is a very great place to start. Gamay is like like you said, it's the most food versatile red in my in my personal opinion. It's so delicious um, and so versatile. You can chill it and drink it on its own, or you could have it with a meal. And um, it even does really well with spicy foods, which is awesome because that myth needs to just go away that you can't have wine with spicy foods. You just need the right wine with spicy food. And I believe that that right wine is Gamay. Um, so, yeah, Gamay is a great – Gamay is the best. I have, I have nothing bad to say about it. I just love it. Praise, You're not, like, asking the wrong person. Praise be to Gamay. <laughs> so my last question, which I thought was interesting when I was kind of uh, – reading the story in its in its early iterations is, you know, the natural wine thing is supposed to be kind of this casual, cool, don't take wine too seriously kind of uh, philosophy, which I, I dig, you know, I think, you know, wine is, yeah. it makes such a big deal about it. And it's just like, like you said, it's grape juice. But 
our last point in the story is about decanting and that this is actually something that you might want to do with some natural wines. Absolutely. Why? I think, so decanting, I think that decanting is not a snobby thing. Decanting is actually pretty smart because what decanting, what decanting can do is like, it just helps like certain, um, certain chemicals blow off basically. And decanting for those people who don't know is literally just pouring the contents of a bottle into another more kind of open into a bigger bottle basically. And you can use anything for that. Really? You can kind of use anything. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, 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 yeah, you can use anything for that, really. I mean, I wouldn't recommend putting it in like a mixing bowl because you're going to have a hard time <laughs> getting it back out. But, you know, you can, you can put it in any um, larger bottle. You want it to have a lot more airspace than basically the tiny, you know, little top of a, a, wine, a wine bottle. But my general rule is if you taste a wine and at first it tastes like too acidic or it's too tannic or it's a little bit too barnyardy or it has a little bit too much volatile acidity, which is like this like kind of vinegary balsamic thing. Give it a second in your glass to see if it blows off just in your glass. But then if it still doesn't blow off and you're still feeling it, that it's unbalanced in a certain way, just throw it in the decanter and try it in 20 minutes. And the likelihood is it's going to taste better. Marissa, have you had a drink yet today? Have I had a drink yet today? No, I have not had a drink yet today. It's still early over here. All right, so we are going to let you go, and you can go open a bottle of Gamay, and (laughs) we will talk to you real soon. Thank you so much, Marissa Ross. Awesome. No, thanks so much for having me. See you guys soon. Hi, is this Mackenzie? Hi, this is her. Hey, this is Carla calling from Bon Appetit. We're really excited about uh, your question. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking time to talk with me. It's our pleasure. Okay, so I guess my question is, so I grew up in the Midwest um, in a landlocked state, and so I, you know, am very comfortable cooking chicken, you know, the typical fish fillets. Um, now we we moved to Augusta, and I want to try to get a little bit more adventurous with seafood. I really love to try, you know, cooking some mussels, clams, oysters, um, but like I get up to the seafood counter at the local grocery store mm-hmm. and it's like a mental block. Like wow. it's just, it's just scary, you know? And I think it's just, I'm afraid I'm going to undercook it or overcook it. Um, or, you know, give people food poisoning. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Our, so, well, the good news is that like that bivalves are really easy to cook and they kind of have the added advantage of telling you when they're done. So the most important thing is you already mentioned your fish monger, your fish purveyor. So this is you're going to a a guy who's inside or a gal who's inside of a supermarket, like a general supermarket. Right. And so how do you like generally how do you feel about that store? Do you do you trust them? Do you is there high turnover? Is it a busy you know, is it in a busy part of town that sees a lot of customers? Those are some of the things you want to kind of ask yourself, like, what's your gut feeling on where you're shopping? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so usually like for our local supermarket, um, you know, in terms of like their produce and their other meat products, it seems like everything is relatively fresh. We're still like, you know, a couple hours away from the shore. So it's, I'm sure it's not like, 
really, really fresh, you know, if you would be like seaside or something. Right. So that, so that's super important when you're buying seafood because it um, has a shorter shelf life than meat and, um, and produce. And it's really important that when you're buying it, the seafood is actually still alive. And the way that you can tell is, first of all, when you walk up to your fish stand, it should smell, it shouldn't smell bad, right? It's always going to have like some, you know, some aroma of fish, but you should feel kind of like that smell of ocean spray in your face or just like your, like a seaweedy type of smell, but not anything that, that turns up your nose. Okay. So okay. you, you, ha- you should trust your nose, um, trust the, the relationship that you have with the purveyor. Cause that's, you know, okay. they know better than anyone when that stuff came in, how it's been stored, Okay, you know, they're, they're touching it, stocking it, repacking it at the end of the day. So they'll be able to tell you, um, what's fresh. Okay. And then the, Clams, mussels, cockles, and oysters, you've mentioned all of those, they should be stored on ice. And if you if you want to be sure of where they came from and when they were harvested, the you can that fish person should be able to tell you that because they're like required to keep the tags for every bag of shellfish. So that sort of addresses some of your concerns about making people sick or, you know, getting something bad. I mean, the thing is, is like, I think people worry about seafood for some people are very afraid of seafood in general. This, so this, you're not alone in this at all. Um, (laughs) Nobody like has the same level of anxiety about raw chicken but like so you should just think about it the same way like if you cook it properly and you start with a good product but clams and mussels you know you can also eat on the half shell well mussels I wouldn't eat raw but clams and oysters you can certainly have raw so even if they are a little bit undercooked they're not that's not going to make anybody sick necessarily does that make sense yes so when you so say you've gone through those steps and you're like I want to, I'm thinking about doing something with muscles. How are the muscles? And the guy's like, the muscles are amazing. We just got them in this morning. You want to make sure that they're, they should be stored on ice and the muscles themselves, when you, they might, um, the shell might gap open a tiny bit, but if you tap them against the counter or kind of just even jostle them, they, the live ones will close back up. Oh. And so that's how you can tell. And the same is true for clams. And that's how you can tell if they're still alive. So okay. once you get home, mussels usually come in two pound bags. You okay. will, you know, transfer them to a colander and, and kind of give them a rinse and start to just visually inspect them. Okay. And okay. any ones that don't close back up, if you, if you tap them or wrap, wrap them on the counter, um, set those ones aside. Okay. So you kind of know from the beginning and that will take you two minutes. Okay. The other great thing about the way mussels are harvested these days is that most of them are farmed in a very sustainable way and they're grown actually on these like long ropes um, that are in the ocean and they harvest them from the waters where they would normally be growing anyway. Um, and one of the great things about that is like back in the day you would get mussels home and they would have barnacles on them and be really sandy and you have to scrub them and wash them, which is just a kind of a nuisance. Yeah. Um, 
with the muscles like Prince Edward Island muscles, they call them PEI muscles. You'll you'll see as you pick them up and kind of turn them over just to make sure that the shells aren't aren't broken. That's another thing to look for. Um, you'll notice they're just not, they're pretty, they're pretty clean. And so, um, people don't think of seafood as like a weeknight meal, but it's like, because it's such a quick cooking protein, it's actually a really, you know, if you just swing by and pick those up on your way home, that is what it is just such a quick cooking, um, protein. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like not something that you can really store in your fridge for, like an extended period of time, like you kind of need to get it. And no. Yeah. I would store it. them no longer than one day. And, okay. um, it's actually, you want to, you want to kind of set up that ice storage at home as yeah. well. So you could, if you were buying them, you know, today for tomorrow, mm-hmm. you want to get them home. You just want to make sure they're staying cold the whole time. And, um, you can kind of like fill a colander with ice and okay. set that over a big bowl and then with a either damp paper towel or a sheet of plastic wrap, you can sep- you you know you can then put the muscles on top. But so there's like a little um, layer in between, and you might have to refresh the ice. But like if it's over a colander, they won't be sitting in water. Got it. Got it. So now you have your beautiful muscles. You're really excited. You know they're super <laughs> fresh. And um, what are some of the ways? I mean, this must be coming. Like, do you, when you eat out, is it, is this one of your favorite things to order? You know, I, I definitely am adventurous when I'm, you know, ordering when I'm eating out. So I'll eat them raw, you know, on the half shell, um, you know, or, uh, I love calamari. Um, so, so, um, I, yeah, I'll definitely eat them when I'm, when I'm out and just kind of, I was just, you know, I'm always looking at you guys' website. So there just mm-hmm. seems to be like a ton of recipes where, you know, in soups or in pasta make yeah. it look amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can do a, a pasta with a clam sauce or a mussel sauce pretty interchangeably. Mussels okay. cook even faster than clams. Okay. Um, and the basic, you know, the basic way to think about how to prepare them if you wanted to do something saucy is just starting like any simple sauce, you know, you would maybe start with some extra virgin olive oil, um, some garlic or leeks or onion or scallion, some kind of aromatic um, or a combination. And then a little white wine if you have it. I know a lot of people think I'm insane for saying this, but I don't always put in white wine um, in shellfish sauces. But if you have a bottle that's open, throw in, you know, Maybe four, yeah. two pounds of mussels, half a cup of white wine. Okay. And then you put your mussels in. And at that point, too, you could add chopped tomato. You could add, yeah, yeah which is I really like with with mussels. You could yeah. add um, a little curry powder if you wanted to. You could do hot pepper flakes. Um, yeah. You, you could in even like instead, parsley, parsley like is great. I would hold some back for the end. So so, like putting some in at the beginning and letting that, that cooked flavor of the herb and then finishing with more fresh. Got it. Um, and then as far as the, the, the liquid goes, you between the white wine or water, you're kind of covered. You could also use, um, coconut milk, which is really nice to do kind of like a, a Thai or a curry. If you have curry paste. Yeah like dissolve that in your aromatics, 
add the coconut milk. And then when that liquid is hot, um, just gently, because if you if you just pour the mussels in, they could hit the bottom of the pan and, and crack open. So you just okay. want to kind of like gently usher them into that bath of stuff that you've got going and cover it and cook them, kind of shaking the pan. They do need to be covered so they steam. And you can shake the pan back and forth a couple of times, open the lid up, turn them over with a spoon, and you'll notice like as you move them around during cooking, some of them will pop open like while you're while you're handling them. So okay. with clams, they'll kind of some will open they'll open like here and there more slowly, maybe over the course of, you know, six to 10 minutes. Mussels are pretty much there. It's all over within about three or four minutes. Wow. So okay. they could, you could open the lid and be like, they're all open. You know, they just, <laughs> it, it goes fast. Yeah. Um, but it's always good to have like a serving dish nearby just in case some open and the other ones are still closed and you can just take them out with a slotted spoon and so that they don't overcook. So like, so once they open up, like at that point, you really want to start removing them from heat pretty soon or else they'll start getting overcooked. Exactly. Pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And when they're overcooked is when they start to get a little tough or rubbery. Got it. Um, and like I said, with mussels, you know, it's, it goes so quickly. And then both of these, I think, you know, especially clams, one of our favorite things to do around here, and we're always talking about grilling clams or grilling yeah. um, oysters. Yeah. And I really love doing that. But you could put, if you have a cast iron skillet, you could do this whole thing on outside on the grill. Um, yeah. And you don't, with mussels, I would definitely do it in a pan on the grill um, so okay. you don't lose any of them. They're so little. Okay. Um, with clams, you can really grill them directly on the grill grates and then wow. use tongs to, to like transfer them. Okay. And again, they tell you when they're done, they pop open. That means that they, that they are, you know, they have passed over to the other side and release the muscle that holds the shell together. And that's yeah. why it pops open. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, and I, I think I remember, um, your, you were talking about this once. I think it was just like a couple months ago or something. And I think you were talking about how you used it as like an appetizer. Oh, yeah. We yes, we it- did. We was on the seafood one and it was um, yeah. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, I grill clams. But then we really talked about grilling fish. Yeah, but it sounded really good. So when you do that, like, do you just season it with salt or do you just leave, like, leave it in its juice and just let people just eat it just as is. Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, you don't, usually the um, seafood has so much of its own saltiness to it that you should hold off even when you're making linguine with clams, like wait until the end of the cooking process. This is the opposite of how we cook everything else where we see, you know, say to season from the beginning. Um, I just did this because I was on vacation and um, did this exact thing. And I used, instead of olive oil, I did it with butter I had okay. some grated, I grated or chopped up finely ginger and some scallions. And okay. so I sauteed those together, Okay. added the clams. Ah. Clams you want to scrub. There are some really wonderful fish purveyors out there who will do this for you. But most of the time, and especially if you're getting your um, seafood very close to the source, it's okay. it's gonna they're gonna be pretty gritty and there's nothing worse than biting into um, a sandy <laughs> clam, um, 
So those you do, I always use just a green scrubby. Okay. And so when you do that colander, rinsing them, you want to give them a good scrub or you can use a coarse like um, dish brush. Okay. And then same exact process. So you was butter, the ginger, the scallion, but it could just as easily be olive oil and garlic and white wine. The clams go in, cover it. And if you're doing it outside and you're using a cast iron, um, just use a big sheet of aluminum foil as the lid Ah. if you don't have the lid. And then kind of just check them and shake the pan around, agitate them a little so they're kind of knocking up against each other. And and as they open, transfer them to a platter. Okay. And that you want to serve with like good warm baguette for dipping. Awesome. And you could finish with, you know, chopped parsley, chopped cilantro, chives, tarragon, if you like dill, fennel. Oh, fennel's a nice one too. You can put fennel in the aromatics at the beginning when you're sauteing everything and softening up the vegetables and save some of the fennel frond and use that as um, your like fresh herb for finishing it. Yeah. And then it sounds like this is kind of an appetizer that you want to serve right away, not like one that if it like if you make it too early and your guests aren't there yet. Yeah, I would definitely do it. And it's fun, like especially for people who haven't haven't had it, they're going to be blown away. They're going to be like, what are you doing? (laughs) And then just as, you know, that could just as easily go over a bowl, you know, get tossed into pasta. Um, You could serve it, you know, spooned over toast. You could um, clams and polenta. My mom was just away too, also on Long Island where there's a lot of fresh seafood. And she and a really, and a good friend of hers came up with this idea to do polenta and clams. And she said it was like fantastic. Yeah. Does that answer your question or was there another technique you wanted to, as far as seafood goes? No, I mean, I, I feel like I have a lot that you gave me right here. Awesome. Um, Once you're, you feel comfortable and you've gotten over your, you know, whatever is intimidating you and you're, you're going to realize how easy it is to cook these. (laughs) Um, then I would graduate to paella. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just because yeah. with paella, you're also working with, you know, the liquid, the rice cooking right. through at the right rate, the yes. shellfish opening. Yeah. No, it sounds amazing. I guess the only other question, I mean, I've seen some recipes where they will shuck the oysters mm. um, first, and that just really sounded like a way that I would like lose a finger. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> it seems like the recipes where they just open is a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, I didn't know if like there is an advantage to like, you know, shucking the oysters first and then cooking them versus just letting them open. Yeah. I guess it just depends. Like if you're going to make a, say a seafood gumbo and you're, you're adding oysters and the oyster liquor right. at the end, you know, obviously that you don't want the shell floating around in the, in the gumbo. Uh, got it. Um, but grilling oysters and I, I also, I'm just like, whenever it's that time for there to be an oyster shucking situation, I let other people do that. (laughs) Um, I've been told, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's not that hard, but like, I just never, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I'll sit this out. (laughs) Um, if you gave me a lobster to break down, that would be fine. But some, somehow, (laughs) but if you grill the oysters too, the same thing, the hinge will open and, Uh. um, you don't have to worry about that. And you can kind of grill them to where they're just barely warm, but still kind of have that oyster on the half shell vibe. Yeah. And that is, and with the smokiness, squeeze a little lemon, some Tabasco, that's really fun for a crowd too. 
That sounds delicious. Yeah, so oh just make God. sure that the that the that the bivalves that you're getting are alive, that okay. they're from a trusted source, and I think that you can just have a ton of fun with it. Gotcha. Well, this sounds great. I'm so excited. I can't wait to try all this. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. Let us know how it goes. Okay, I will. All Take right. Care. Bye. Bye, Carla. Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Emma Wurtzman and Carrie Polis and edited by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's with additional music by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.